Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a really exciting one. You might know her from her time on Pop Rocket or as the co-host of the wonderful Waiting to Exhale podcast, which just entered its third season. Winter Mitchell Rohrbaugh is here. How's it going? Hi, George. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. Well, we're absolutely thrilled to have you. This is an exciting one because when we first started chatting, we were like, you, well, first, you threw out a ton of options. You were like, I'm so ready. I, here, here. I am psyched. <laughs> yeah. And so, well, so before we even get into that, uh, the movie that you did pick, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your history with horror? If it's something that you've been watching for a long time or if it's oh, more recent. George, that would be a whole episode in <laughs> I have to say that, like, my first experience with horror that I can remember, there's, it's t- it's kind of twofold. There was one film that my mother and father, it was, like, 1980, I was born in 80, so it was, like, 1982, 83. We just moved to Los Angeles, and we were in Los Angeles for a couple of years because my, my dad got a promotion, and his company merged with another airline, so we had to be in L.A. while he did training. So it was kind of a culture shock because I'm from San Francisco. So already, you know, you're two to three years old. You're already thrust into like a new situation. My little sister had just been born. So it was just like a lot of transition at the sure. same time. Sounds like it. Yeah. So everything was just like, ah, it was just very <laughs> different. And I remember that my parents were watching a movie that to this day, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that, can I say, can I curse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh, figure, okay, okay. I figure <laughs> if they're old enough to watch the movies, they're old okay. enough to hear a curse. <laughs> Okay, good. I don't know what the fuck this movie was, but it was like aliens erupting from pods. And then before, you know, they they lived there for a little while. Uh, uh, we were in an apartment, and they there were some kids that lived above us, and these kids were like full on uh, Friday the Thirteenth, huge fans, and oh, nice. we watched a lot of horror with them. I was way too young to watch it, but I think my first movie true experience of horror was, it was sort of a tri-fold of like an American werewolf in London, Uh which I made my mom and dad rent because I liked the box. That's an intense one to start with. (laughs) And it was nightmares on, I could not go to the bathroom without thinking that a decaying bud of mine was going to be standing (laughs) next to me. I'm not joking for at least like seven or eight years. I did not pee with the medicine cabinet closed. I would open it, pee, (laughs) wash my hands (laughs) and and then run out and close it. Cause I was like, I don't want any surprises. Some people like it's so funny because boomers are like shower curtains and I'm like medicine cabinets. <laughs> and then it was Nightmare on Elm Street. It drops. And that was huge because yeah. the marketing on Nightmare on Elm Street was just nightmare. Just the marketing alone, if anybody remembers, you know, it came out, it was low budget and then it blew up and then it just was like full on Freddy mania from that yeah. point. So that was also an experience. And then finally, like the Twilight Zone movie, Ooh. because I would watch the Twilight Zone with my grandparents. And I was like, this is easy. This is fine. <laughs> this will be that opening scene with Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd <laughs> fucked me up. <laughs> So for a while, I was like, am I a pussy? Do I not like horror movies? But then I realized that I love the feeling of being scared and not knowing what's going to happen. And that plunged me into my obsession with horror movies. My husband and I, we watch a horror movie if we can. We've exhausted every streaming. Shudder is useless to us. (laughs) I just donate as a volunteering scenario because their library is trash and I just wait for (laughs) Joe Bob. Tubi, we've done Tubi, but Tubi doesn't know how to categorize what's horror. Very true, yeah. Sometimes they'll be like... (laughs) 
Christmas movies? I'm like, sure. Okay, horror. Um, but, you know, like anytime, you know, and, and, and the, the worst thing about this pandemic is that there were so many horror on the horizon, films yeah. on the horizon that yeah. have been shelved or pushed out. And it's just, it's a bummer because I was looking forward for looking forward to all those films coming out sort of this fall, Halloween, Candyman, yeah, you know, and it's just it's just a bummer. But even yeah. even stuff that was like sort of horror adjacent that looked really cool and dark, like uh, Green Knight looked really cool. Yeah, um, Saint yeah. Maud looked really cool. Oh, Saint Maud looks amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so hopefully those all find another release date or go to yeah. VOD relatively soon, yeah. but. Definitely, I, I sympathize with your pain there. So. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dry out there. Yeah, well, so clearly you're you're all over the place in terms of the genre. Do you have yeah. a favorite subgenre within horror that you're like, you're like, oh, this is just oh, where I tend yes. to gravitate to? I think as I've gotten older, because now I know what the jump scares are. I know right. what's going to be. You know be, the tropes, the beats. I know the tropes, the beats. I'm very much into A24 horror. Yeah. So I'm very much, you know, like Midsummer and um, what's the other one that he did before Midsummer? Hereditary. Uh, Hereditary. Yeah. Uh, Ari Aster. Uh, those films, I like really, I, I, I like psychological horror, mm-hmm. right? I think psychological horror is special, but I also think that a lot of people can't do it. I think there was this era <laughs> in the early aughts where people were just like, it's scary, but it's PG-13. And yeah. it's like, that's not scary, and this is all trash, and the CGI <laughs> is horrible, and Very I true. just wasted money <laughs> going to see whatever crap. But then I also really love, I think, not even subgenre, body horror is mm. still a very good one. I mean, uh, John Carpenter is one of my most favorite directors because he ties it all together. The soundtrack, yeah. the characters, the actors putting in, putting them in the role, the environment is just all of, you know, all over the place, but it's all still, you know, nicely uh, pulled together. And I always think about how the thing did so terribly. Yeah. If the thing came out probably maybe two years later, it probably would have done a lot better than it did. So yeah, like psychological body horror and anything in that vein you know i loved it follows i love a A modern day classic for sure modern day classic and would love to see more from that guy Mm -hmm. and neon demon neon demon also i I know people shit on it but no i look i nicholas wending reffin he's not uh, batting a hundred or batting a thousand in my book yeah yeah when he hits i mean he really hits hits. Uh, that's that's really great. Um, did you see um, Color Out of Space earlier this year? Oh, Color Out of Space, so good, so good. <laughs> I mean, so good. Yeah, and that's great what I'm body horror. About. Yeah, great body horror. And those are the things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for all those elements together because I want to be scared out of my mind. Yeah. And the thing about Neon Demon is that movie is so all over the place. It's the only movie in Keanu Reeves's repertoire <laughs> where you f- didn't really you forget that he's in it. Yeah. Every time he he shows up in Neon Demon, and I've seen it like 10 or 11 times. I'm like, oh, I forgot he was in this. <laughs> oh, shit, Keanu. Oh, shit, Keanu. That's right. <laughs> oh, you're kind of so gross you, in this movie. You're kind of gross in this movie. But I love the, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's the shit I'm talking about. Yeah, you for know, sure. That gets me revved up. Hell yeah. Well, so because you are so versed in knowledge about horror, the movie that you picked today was a first time watch for me, which I was yeah. really, really excited about. Because, and I'm thrilled that you did, because this movie absolutely ruled. I love it. Oh, yes, George! Yes! Yes! Yeah, it's great. We're talking about the uh, 2015 release that absolutely needs more eyes on it, Anthony de Blasi's Last Shift. 
man. It was just so great. De Blasi, he also co-wrote it with Scott Poiley. Yeah. And yeah. both of them also produced along with Mary Poiley. So yeah. very small team. They're just kind of keeping it close. It's really interesting, too, because he said that he wanted to make so, sort of a smaller contained film because yeah. that's how you create an atmosphere is when you can Absolutely. really contain it. And, and Holy shit, yes. Yeah. <laughs> He, he does it so well. And I mean, like you were talking about with John Carpenter, where he kind of ties everything together in terms yeah. of like the score and the sound design and everything. Yeah. That's very much on display in this as well. I mean, the sound design in this is absolutely great. And lends to the spookiness, Absolutely, right? yeah. And what I also, uh, in terms of that psychological horror that you were talking about and something that I really love as well, yeah. um, is that sense of ambiguity as to what's going on. Yes. He made the movie to be experienced from her point of view instead right. of like a detached third person so right. that you're along for the ride and not sure about what's going on. And that's like, that's part of what I love about Nightmare on Elm Street. That's part of what right. I love about this as well. Yeah. Do you like that sort of ambiguity or are you sort of like, this is an exception. Usually I like things to be pretty concrete. No, I don't like things to be concrete. I think that it's getting harder and harder to do those things. I think that's particularly why I loved how the new Halloween 2018 mm -hmm. because what's there left to be ambiguous <laughs> about? There's Michael Myers, 40 years, 45 years of this character. And it's <laughs> like, what else can you do? And somehow they bring it back again to that psychological. You see the psychological yeah. that, 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 that Jamie Lee Curtis is dealing with and Lori, uh, and you just know that whatever she's expecting, she's expected. All. She's, she's, De dealt with a lot. I mean, she's been yeah. stabbed. She's been thrown out of shit. I mean, what else could possibly happen? And when you can bring in another thread of that, that's that's fantastic. And I think that The Last Shift was able to do that. I mean, this is a film that founded on Tubi. I have to give Tubi a shout out because Tubi oh, is yeah. trying. At least Tubi tries. Fuck yeah. <clears throat> Shudder. Uh, <laughs> She's not try. Uh, Tubi tries. Tubi definitely I, tries. Tubi definitely tries. You must tries. respect. You must respect. You must Tubi. respect. They like the Italian. I forgot to say, my other favorite genre is Italian, vintage Italian oh, horror. Oh, hell they yeah. Just, Classic Giallo stuff. Oh, my God. The giallo, yeah. there's, there's shit on there. My husband and I are looking at it and be like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm just going to keep going. Um, yeah, that sounds like Giallo to me. <laughs> But no, like the last shift, I'm think I'm sitting here and I'm thinking like I, it's another cop thing. It's another you know pretty girl in a in a in a police officer suit. But then it just starts pulling into these different spaces right away. Yeah, and it leads you to think it's going to be one thing. You know, you think it's going to be just like slasher, da da da. da. And then it just it's, it's the mind not. fuckery. <laughs> it is definitely not the mind fuckery. Is just beyond. It was very compelling, fantastic. Yeah. The main character, her name is Jessica Lauren. Uh, she's played by Juliana Harkavy, who, I mean, she has to carry this movie. Like, it, the, the, it's incredible yeah. how much work she has to do to make this succeed, and she does. Yeah, and I'd never even heard of her before. She apparently, I think she was on the CW. She may have been one of the, one of those shows, which makes sense. Yeah, um, she has that look like Canadian and <laughs> ambiguously ethnic. But you know, when I'm watching the movie, the one thing that I thought was interesting was having her be a cop in, like you know, following in her father's footsteps. Definitely, and I definitely liked that idea. And I thought it was going to be one of those situations where she's like, she did it as a matter of. Of, of obligation mm -hmm. but no you know she was doing it because her father was killed on on duty and this was sort of her 
you know, following in his footsteps and, and sort, or sort of like, it was like honoring him. What, yeah. what, what really screwed me up is the fact that she's learning about this incident that happened with her dad, which I, I, I couldn't remember. Did the incident cause his death or did it happen while he was on? While I think he was, he was like responding to right. uh, that, like uh, the shootout at the farm. Right. And then in he died, but they managed to capture the cult, which brought them back right. to the police station. So right. Right. he was like the hero. Like everyone right. was like, oh, like he's the one who made this possible. And there's yeah. definitely that, like you said, there's, there's definitely different sorts of like obligation in terms of like, yeah. uh, I just expect you to do this because it's the way it's always been versus yeah. like, uh, there's a legacy that I'm trying to live up to, and exactly. that's ex- that's what she's really going for, and she manages to communicate that incredibly well, especially with it being this, you know, the full responsibility of shutting down this precinct, right? Yeah, yeah. this precinct that I feel like if this happened in real life, everybody would know that this police department, this police station, is closing down. So yeah, nobody's. You would get some like you know crazies coming around, just you know, up. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know you were. Right. Yeah, and we point them in the wrong direction. But she was sort of surveilling this with a, you know, she took, she was taking it seriously. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's her first night. She's like, even if I'm getting the shit end of the stick here, I'm yeah. gonna do my best to to do it right. Yeah. In terms of that police station, though, I I thought it was interesting that this wasn't like a set that they built. They just found an actual abandoned police station uh, yeah. in Sanford, Florida, and they they shot the movie there. Yeah. I went looking for budget information, and I couldn't okay. really find it anywhere, and so I just reached out to Anthony de Blasi, and he said... Look at you, George! Yeah, I, that's taken initiative right there. Wow! And I, he said that they shot the movie for uh, $150,000 all in. Get out! Yeah. Are you Serious? Yeah, he said that they did it like as a challenge to themselves. And I got this quote from him. He said, Wow. It was the third movie that I did with that production team. So I knew we could pull it off. The other two movies were much higher budget than that. So I really wanted to see how far we could push ourselves. I threw out that number almost on a whim because it made sense to me. But it's the exact number we settled on. But it took massive planning and dividing our back-end profits up in a much more generous way, as well as myself and the producers not taking fees. So That's fantastic. Yeah, they it, it was very much like a passion project, something yeah. that they wanted to get done. And so they're yeah. like, we're going to make this happen any way that we can. That's fantastic. I mean, it didn't seem... what The only thing that shocks me about it is that, look, the set itself... You know, that set didn't require much, right? right. You could have just used uh, even any all building, the and dressed, any it building up, yeah. <laughs> and dressed it up. It was the special effects. I mean, yeah. the, the gore in this incredible. film is incredible. <laughs> so for 150 grand, this is why with everything that's going on, George, with everything that we're learning about the economy and what economics are in terms of what things cost because yeah. we're having to slash and, you know, reduce and do the I just I, I no longer believe you need a 35 million budget to pull things off yeah. some certain certain pictures off. I mean, if they can do this on 150 grand, I'm not saying that people should be paid less than what they deserve or should not take a fee at all. But I definitely think a reevaluation, a reevaluation. <laughs> if he had a million dollars, you know, that right. would have been, you know, and, but I, I really think that. 
looking up the, the ladder and like yes. at the fees that producers are taking yes. and stuff. Um, I mean, you know. we're due for the the reckoning is, is in progress. <laughs> yes, uh, it's, yes. Uh, it's on the horizon for sure. And uh, and look, the fact of the matter is that horror really lends itself to this sort of thing as well yes. because it's yeah. so often it needs to be high concept. It needs to yes. be something that you can yeah. really sell in a in a quick sentence and it has sure. to be digestible yeah there, there I, this is not to say that there aren't like character study horror movies because there are but by and right. large they're definitely more these sort of concept based uh movies and be, when you're able to do that and not have to cr- like invest so much into puffing up the other aspects to sure. to keep people interested sure you know you're able to sort of invest the money where it really needs to go, which is into making the movie actually look good and just keep it at a, a reasonable price. <laughs> as yeah, we can, as, as we a see reasonable here. price. <laughs> I mean, I, I think back to why things became high concept and I think it has to do a lot with like that Star Wars era. And it mm-hmm. was like, if, sci- if, if science fiction fantasy can blow it out of the water. We can do the same thing with horror. And I feel like in the 80s, that's where you start getting these big, huge, big budget uh, films because they want to create franchises, right? So they want the Friday the 13th, you know, 27. They want Nightmare on Elm Street 9. They want Saw 10. But I'm starting to think that there is no need for these. I'm starting to think that there is, if anything, we're pulling back off of that concept like I don't you know I for the longest time I wanted to see Freddy versus Jason versus Ash but now I'm thinking to myself do I right do you know at do what I cost really? at what <laughs> <laughs> literally and figuratively <laughs> at what cost do I want to see Freddy versus Jason versus Ash I don't know if it's not, you know and I'm getting and I'm getting like specific about the type of content I want to digest when it comes to more like how good is this director how right. creative is this writer how many how movies old? could be made yes. for that movie yes like. exactly exactly and we see a lot of situations where like the recent reboot of Nightmare on Elm Street where it's absolutely it's exactly <laughs> trash garbage bad child's play reboot trash garbage bad I mean we, do we need did you need to do that no. or are you going to do what you're ultimately going to do and give Brad Dourif back his baby and put it on the small screen. I mean, like, at what cost are we doing these things and not really being true to fans yeah. and creating new fans? You know right. what I mean? And I think Last Shift is a film that creates new fans of a genre that mixes so many... You know, The Last Shift has very Carpenter-esque elements of it. It's got that... Uh, what's the film he did? Here I go. Um, what's the film he did? Assault on Precinct uh, 13? Yes, yes. It has a little bit of that because like, Precinct 13 is a drama action, right? But it has very right. like kind of horror that being on edge is something that I think yeah. he really captures. The tension, yeah, for sure. The tension is just there, there, there. And I think that we are, you know, post-COVID are going to see more films just like The Last Shift. I mean, that m- film could have easily be, been have been made during a pandemic, yeah. right? It's yeah. just one actress, you know, not a lot of crew on set, not a lot yeah. of touching. And this, Keep the camera six feet back. You're Keep the camera that. six feet back. You're good to go. And I think this puts people in a position to become more creative. I mean, yeah. also the cult, that, that cult B story about the cult being the one that's haunting the station and yeah. sort of reckoning with the daughter, of of their killer, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the, you know, I felt like that was, 
you know, a great way to tie it together. But I mean, easily, we have to talk about the part that was the part. Yeah. You know, (laughs) definitely. Hey, well, we'll definitely get to it. I mean, yeah, I I really want to go through this movie because there's so much that's great about it. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. The. The, the last thing I'll say before we really get into the plot is that yeah. the, some of his influences that he cited were John Carpenter, mm-hmm. A Nightmare on Elm Street, and yeah. uh, the Charles Manson documentary Manson yeah. from 1973, which, for my money, they're all very visible, but there's nothing wrong with wearing your influences on your sleeve. Um, I think that being able to recognize those influences helps strengthen what's already good about this, where, like... Right. The the Nightmare on Elm Street aspects of it where I'm like, oh, this is like Nightmare on Elm Street where like maybe she fell asleep or maybe she's awake and and that sort of thing is like, oh, now I'm really interested. I understand where he's taking from in in horror history. Right. Um, So good influences, Anthony. (laughs) Good. I mean, I mean, you know, people can always say that this is who their influence is going to be. But how does that become how is that executed when i think about the fact that you know you look at a new halloween and it's written by halloween fans you have to think about the notion that you don't want to replicate what's been done before but you want to keep those core elements you want to do right by the source material but you also want to bring something new to it that that would get would keep some what would a fan want to see right and so that's what i think is so important here about what anthony did with this movie is he did act like a fan in creating this film Definitely. I, I think that that's a really great point, too. Um, I mean, it's it's the difference between something feeling like a, another worn out extension of a franchise and something like uh, the spiral from the Book of Saw, where like right. people know that Chris Rock is a big fan of the Saw series. And right. he, 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 for someone like him to like really step in and be like, here's what I want to see as a fan and uh, having been along for the whole ride. To me, that's exciting that someone who has who knows what we're going through as fans, exactly. uh, and uh, and yeah, it's it's definitely a, a much better look at at how it proceeds. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. Ooh, this is the ghost of George, and it's getting to be the spooky season. However, you're getting your scares in. They go better with tuckins, the all-in-one inside-out s'more. Each tuck-in has crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate, all tucked inside a fluffy marshmallow. And the best part is, because they're self-contained, you can roast them anywhere. Around a fire pit while you're telling ghost stories, or even just over the stove for a sweet movie treat alternative to popcorn. Uh, They also come in multiple flavors, and while you can't go wrong with classic, I gotta say that I'm a cookies and cream guy personally. Plus, it's a local company owned by two previous guests on this very show. And since they like the show so much, they're giving listeners a 15% discount if you use the offer code BEST15 at tuckins.com. That's BEST15 at T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com for 15% off. So don't wind up with a bag of stale mallows in the back of your pantry. Check out Tuckins today. And now, back to the show. So we open up on Jessica Lauren who's uh, a rookie police officer literally about to take her her first shift and she's on the phone with her mom and this is it's immediately relatable i mean how many times have i been like we've had this discussion before like while you're just getting hectored yeah (laughs) it's it's great and they also managed to interweave some backstory right away as well they kind of allude to her father's policeman job and how he was killed on duty and everything and so 
we get a sense of this character even before she's really done anything, which I think is super important in terms of relatability. Yeah, no, I feel like immediately you get the sense that she's tough, right? Like yeah. she's she's had to, I don't want to say lived a hard life, but she's definitely taking everything seriously about what she's about to embark upon and i think you know the in the inclusion of the mom being just like wired it, it helps set the tone yeah for the film right because we we know that something some bad shit is gonna happen that's why we're there watching the movie but uh, clearly <laughs> i thought it some- was a comedy <laughs> <laughs> but no it's di- it's much different than when you think about training day right yeah it's, for sure training day opens with ethan Hawke's character like his baby and his wife and the and and you're just like oh this should be interesting you don't yeah. know what's to come right but in this movie you're really start you're getting the sense that some bad shit went down in knowing that some bad shit is to come right yeah it, it's definitely a great tone setter and yeah her first shift is she's taking the last shift at a police station before it's permanently closed because they built a new one up the street. Mm-hmm. And she brushes off her mom and reports for duty. And she meets Sergeant Cohen, who seems like a real weirdo. Like he's like <laughs> just like freaking out down the hall when we first meet him. Um, but he leads her on like this brief tour and he says that a hazmat team will be there later in the night to collect um, some evidence that they can't just throw out because it's like it has blood or bodily fluids and stuff on it. So uh, she's not allowed to leave the premises because she's the only one there. Mm -hmm. And one thing I really love that they kind of come back to frequently in this is that it starts – the movie really kicks off with this great close-up on the clock – and the clock hands moving. Yes. And it's the shift starts at eight and it's this like really intense kind of David Lynchy close up where yeah. he really loves to get super intense on it. And this is right up against it. it the interesting to note that the film is 87 minutes. Yeah. So we don't get that. What is that? That's an hour and 17 minutes, eight, eight, 27 minutes, 27. Yeah. Just yeah. under an hour and a half. Yeah. So we, you know, movies, usually aren't you know at these days especially yeah we're, we're we're pushing two hours for a lot of these movies these days and for a horror film i think that's way too long uh, uh, you're preaching to the choir right now i <laughs> you see a movie that's uh, literally i texted my friend and i was like it's under 90 minutes <laughs> exactly exactly i'm like oh good it's under 90 minutes it's great i mean i just did, midsummer is the one exception i feel right. like you have to watch that movie in its entirety but you have to earn your length and a lot exactly. of horror movies don't exactly. do that exactly so. you have to earn your that is a great saying george that's absolutely <laughs> and that and that's why i'm saying this movie to me is perfect at 87 minutes yeah she falls asleep like right away yeah and yeah. she dozes yeah, off yeah. and and the book the book drops and she quote unquote wakes up right. and and from that point on yeah. everything goes out the window. You're like, yeah, yes. who knows? Who knows what's happening <laughs> what now? What is time? What yeah. is time? Right, 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 and right, right, right. Like I said, this is great. This is like classic Nightmare on Elm Street territory. It's mm-hmm. what I love about that franchise. It's I, pretty much the most interesting thing about it to me is that sense of ambiguity. And this conjures that immediately. Yeah, yeah. She gets a phone call from a woman who says like a bunch of creepy stuff about being trapped and other people might be dead and the line goes dead. This is your your classic scary phone call. <laughs> you oh got to have it. It's a tried and true method. You love to hear it. It sets you on edge right away. 
scary. I love how she's like, you know, she was really like, uh, you know, like not really shaken up yet. Yeah, little, she's like, she's like, okay, uh, I have to maintain my calm. I'm a police yeah. officer. Like, yeah. And she calls the other station to be like, what the hell? When I came here, you said that the emergency calls were going to be rerouted. And they're like, oh, it was supposed to happen. We'll look into it. Yeah. That sounds like a usual cop <laughs> yeah. response. Yeah. Oh, we thought it was going to happen. <laughs> we uh, thought it was going to happen. Uh, <laughs> we'll, file some, we'll write a report. <laughs> and uh. she hears some banging from down the hall. And she goes to investigate. And we get another oh, one of those really stylish clock close-ups. And we mm-hmm. see that... As far as we can tell, it's now 10 p.m., so two hours later. Long nap for her. <laughs> <laughs> On the first night of her yeah. first shift. Cool. Yeah. Oh, we'll just let that pass. <laughs> yeah, you get one. <laughs> yeah, you get one. <laughs> and she doesn't see anything. She sits down to eat. And she pulls just this huge hair out of her throat. It's oh, like God. way longer than her hair. It triggers her like gag reflex too. So she like kind of like throws up a little bit. It's a gross scene right oh, there. So it, gross. Oh man. Plus, I'll be honest. I like I. There are some people who are like, oh, it's a hair in my food, no big deal. And like to an extent, I've had to learn to live with it because I have cats. But I am still like. Oh God! A fucking hair in my food. Get this just, out of here! God, like, just get this. Out. No, yeah. I found. No, I found my own hair in a salad I made, and I was just like, it, I in knowing it was my own hair because I made the salad. It was still. Gr- I was. Yeah. I threw the whole salad away. <laughs> Hey, it's my it's, hair. It's tough out there. Yeah. It's tough I mean, out there. <laughs> you, who knows what's happening? You can't see exactly. on top of your head. <laughs> I can't see on top of my head. I don't know if I'm in Juan. I don't know yeah. what's going on. <laughs> I may have fallen asleep. This may all be a dream. I might wake up tomorrow and there was no pandemic. Oh my God. <laughs> you and guys. You, who, you didn't know I was asleep the whole time? <laughs> No one said anything. <laughs> uh, it's it's great though. It's I mean another sort of like classic thing. And there's more knocking. Uh, yeah. I mean, just Ugh. random noise is so effective <laughs> at just being unsettling. We're like, I just got, I got, I got to see it. I need to see yeah. what's making this noise. Yeah. And she doesn't see anyone at the door because it's like it's like a genuine knocking, and there's yeah. no one there. But she finds an unhoused guy in the hallway and like this dude is grody he's got like lesions grody. on his feet and he pees on the floor and it's gross it's more gross stuff and yeah. she she forces him to leave and one thing i really like about this movie so far is that it keeps doing this long lingering hold on the hallway to the holding yes, cells yes, it's so simple yes, it's but it's yes. so effective you get like this slow shaky zoom and some spooky yeah. score it's it's just a, a nice like reminder of cool you haven't seen anything yet yeah it's a red herring without being an overt red herring we already know there's yeah. some shit going on <laughs> inside this building and but we don't know the layout of the building right so we right. don't really know like we got we get that like arbitrary showing around shit from that creepy guy the creepy police chief but we don't really know like what's behind everything because he was not he was he to me was an unri- unreliable character uh yeah. narrator uh you know rather like he seemed high you know, if she hadn't fallen asleep and he may have been a figment of whatever imagination yeah. she dreamed up. 
Absolutely. And because of that, th- this next sort of couple scenes are her kind of exploring the police station, which yeah. that sense of discovery is beneficial to us as well, where we get to feel right. like we're exploring it with her. Right, right, right. And uh, I mean, her first step, she hits the bathroom, <laughs> which is disgusting. <laughs> Disgusting. Layer of filth on everything. It's truly, this might be the most horrific thing in the movie. It's just how nasty this bathroom is. I haven't seen a bathroom that disgusting since Candyman. Yeah. Like, that was a disgusting, and that was a pretty fucking filthy bathroom. The bar is high. The bar is high. The bar is high. (laughs) You will have to do an episode on nastiest bathrooms in horror, by the way. That'll be a bonus set. We'll rank them. Top five grossest bathrooms in horror history. Exactly. Number one with a bullet, Candyman. Candyman, <laughs> disgusting. It's. I think it's funny though that like that like kind of is the scare of that room. Like they're like it, nothing else yes. happens in it, and 100%. you're just like, oh, that's really gross. But I'm still like in the realm of pot of like reality. Still. Yeah, it's just yeah. a realistic gross thing. I was anticipating a shit monster. <laughs> Your classic dogma situation? Yeah, my classic dogma situation. <laughs> I was like, wow. Oh, but no, I, we didn't get that. Which not is enough fine. of them. For my money, not enough <laughs> shit monsters in horror these days. In horror these days. <laughs> oh, man. Next stop, locker room. And yeah. this is where things really start to get interesting because she yeah. finds a picture of her and her dad. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's cute and definitely not ominous as hell. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it as soon as I saw it. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Big mistake to find yeah. any family heirlooms in a horror movie. In, the, in a supposedly empty building in a yep. horror film. Okay. Yeah, yes. definitely. And while she's distracted looking at it, every locker door opens. Again, <sighs> so simple, but so effective. So my, effective. The hairs on my arms stood up. At, like It's it's a, such a great like immediate cut to a, a wider angle of it. And yeah. It just looks so good, so simple. I mean, that's how you keep the budget low is you utilize these sort of tried and true effects that can be done in camera. You don't have to go back and and retouch things up. Exactly. Uh, And having it be spooky, right? We didn't need like that. That was the jump scare, right? Right. Like like we didn't need – that was just spooky as hell. Yeah. Especially since since it's she's the only person there, so not hearing anything, any of that, and it, it just ambient silence again. Super. It does the work. Right? It does, it the, does work. the work. Yeah. And she gets called back. Same girl. She says her name is Monica, and that they took her to a ranch with pigs before hanging up again. And you're like, oh, all right, scary again. But you get yeah. no time to rest right. because there's another call right away. And oh, things God. are really starting to heat up here because this is Hazmat saying that they're running behind and that they uh. don't know when they're going to show up. So perfect But is setup. it Hazmat? But is exactly. it Hazmat? Uh, who even knows? Is it? Per- <laughs> it's such a perfect setup. Like, like I said, the ambiguity being established right up top yeah. does so much yeah. to have this sort of – to carry you through the rest of the movie and just and yeah. keep you questioning everything. Yeah. And I always wonder – and this is probably too early to even have this discussion, and we can talk about it more at the end – if this is like a way for her to process her grief. Yeah. 
you know what I mean? Like Definitely. this was an exercise in the grief process for her, but we can come back onto that one. Definitely. I mean, we'll, we'll definitely get to it because I think that, uh, it, it's a, a very good point is all I'll yeah. say. Right now. Okay, good. <laughs> so, good, 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 yeah. good. So Lauren is jumpy and shelves are moving around behind her. And as she jumps up, she hears more noise from down the hall and she finds the door open and there's like a mess there leading mm. to outside. And so she's like, again, there's sort of this realm of reality where you're like, is this something supernatural? Is this just someone who broke in? She calls it in as a B and E, yeah. but she just gets a garbled come again back oh. on the radio. And Oh man, when I heard that, I was like, Oh, oh no, no. <laughs> It oh, was no, girl. so scary. It was so, like it just you don't know what's actually happening. Yes, and it's so. And how great. many films doing do that these days? Not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot. Not Definitely a lot of like lot. I don't. It's just again what I was saying is like that high art horror is this is by by no means this, this I don't think this movie was designed to be like you know in the Ari Aster's of the world but I think it was definitely designed to be smarter than your average horror film and I just the the amount of time in such a short confined my amount of time that he takes us through every possible not only trope but like right. what could be absolutely happening is fantastic when you think about the time that this movie came out, it was showing in festivals in 2014 for a 2015 yeah. release. Like this is sort of at the beginning of that transition into yeah. this sort of Ari Aster, Robert Eggers kind of horror. Yeah. And so it's sort of interesting to look at as like a transitory period. It's kind of like the Neanderthal mm. between Australopithecus and uh, <laughs> Homo sapiens. <here>. Exactly. <laughs> like, Whoa. <laughs> Whoa! Maybe you're right. In our world, maybe you're right. Absolutely. I, I I think everybody had just gotten tired of spending money on things that weren't. You pull out things out of your the, the legacy. You know, New Line getting bought by Warner. Like you know, you start just going to the library. What can we do? You know, Scream Four, whatever. You know, you, you're just looking through things. And I think the re, the diminishing returns on film on those type of films, and especially the advent of television horror, Walking Dead. Black Mirror. Like, it yeah. was people were doing it better on, for less in shorter amount of times. You had to start giving it a little bit more high art. Absolutely, yeah. you do. And I think the, the sort your your point is absolutely correct about TV sort of forcing the hand yep. of movies in, in yep. terms of what they're doing and what, what audiences were clearly gravitating towards. Yep, absolutely. And one other thing that uh, I forgot to mention from within the call is that the other station from after Monica's second call said that Monica isn't calling nine one one. She's they're like, she, if she's calling you, she's calling directly to that station. And this is just more fuel for the what's actually going on fire. It's just like the perfect touch to be like, Oh, like, no, we're not even seeing that call come in. And even even though you're like okay, things are starting to escalate. Yeah, yeah. It man it manages to even supersede that and jump to eleven real quick when <laughs> singing starts and the lights go out and a siren blares and you're just like, fuck, it's happening. <laughs> we are d deep in the well now. Yeah. We're in the bell jar. 
she stumbles across the guy from before, definitely not who was singing, I might add, right, right. and she hits him with a nightstick before cuffing him and taking him to a holding cell. Not exactly gently either. Like right. this, this dude is, he's messed up in yeah. some way, and mm-hmm. she is uh, pretty brusque with him, is all I'll say, <laughs> in terms of the way that she handles it. But she, you're also like, she's scared you know she doesn't know what's going on she already told this guy to leave yeah you're sort of like uh, maybe she's being a little aggressive but also like i also get it like you, yeah. you're also you understand why she's on edge right now right right right, right. <laughs> to put it mildly <laughs> yeah no i mean this guy she thinks this guy might be the cause of i, I think you know she yeah. probably thinks this guy she's might extrapolating, be extrapolating yeah exactly like you know like trying to deduce like what is actually happening and maybe I can get if the one thing I can contain and can control yes. is putting this guy in this holding cell as it turns out that's not the case though because no. as she's dragging him in the door closes and locks behind her and there's a woman screaming and the lights go out again and the guy rushes her and she has to like tase him this is like a really intense action scene yes. in the middle yes. of this horror movie and holy shit she goes to the door to see what's going on and to say open the door and this is i think a really great performance this is sort of the, the first indication of how great this performance is going to be because yeah. she's trying so hard to keep her cool but she's letting the tension kind of creep into her voice yep this was this was definitely the first scene where I was like, oh, okay, she's really bringing it for this yeah. role. Yeah, and you can tell that like voice quivers a little bit, but she's again, I, I, and as a chick myself, a female, I have to uh, think about being a strong female in these scenarios, and it's like you know you don't want to look like you're, you're you don't have this. Like I've got this. Like she walked right. in there like I got this, and. The, um, the the idea that she doesn't have this and this how embarrassing this will be if this if it comes out that I locked myself in the holding cell in an empty building on my first night of the last you know I, I can see all of those those were going through my mind too in addition to that other layer of horror sure especially in a job that is as bereft with yes. uh, good old boys and yeah. sort of that boys club exclusion where yes. women in those positions tend to have to work twice as hard because 100%. if they don't manage to meet the like what the bar is then they're all like oh this is all women not yeah. just this one person exactly a- and exactly uh, yeah, police work, I think, has a lot of that. And you add that on top of sort of this legacy that she has to live up to. Exactly. There's a lot of baggage involved with her sort of uh, facade of strength there. Exactly, exactly. A person who is like, if Baghead Jason from Friday the 13th Part 2 was crossed with a Silent Hill enemy, this dude is, is just grotesque. <laughs> Pops up, surprises her, surprises me. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> he, sh- he, sh- he shows Were you up scared, George? I, he got me. He got me good. And, I mean, he just shows up in the window and she drops oh, her flashlight. Man. And I was oh. like, yeah, I get it. I understand. I would have dropped my shit too. <laughs> it was horrific. Yeah. I definitely was like, <laughs> <laughs> So that was outside the door, but inside the door, there's like these whispered, like fucked up taunts at her. And then there's a flash of two of the fucked up bag faces behind her. And then the lights come on and the door opens and no one's there. And you're just like, come on. 
<laughs> and it's her immediate reaction is that it's not okay. So this was like. Somebody just locked my ass in here. Yeah. Who's in yeah. here? Somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember she's just she's just like immediate the immediate uh, notion that it, it this was incidental, but not yeah. like su- supernatural. It's it's uh, it's pretty wild, but she's again trying to sort of keep her cool. She recites like this police officer's mantra. I assume it's part of the oath that they take. Yeah, probably could have looked it up, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the this is um this isn't the first time that we've seen her sort of resort to this to mm-hmm. sort of maintain some calm act as a focus something for her mm-hmm. to keep her mind on and she calls over to report what happened after some deliberation but she backs down on it cuz again she's clearly unwilling to give the impression that she can't handle this job yeah yeah you're like, is it that devotion to the oath that she took, her father living up to her legacy, or to his legacy? So much is wrapped up in the emotions of this movie that they've that they've established it so quickly too. Is I think really impressive. I think it's interesting considering that this was 2014 for a 2015 release, where it was made was Sanford, Florida, which is where Trayvon Martin was killed. So we'd already been in the midst of this. Now it's an us and them type scenario right. when it comes to cop more than ever, right? Like more than it's always been lingering and sort of bubbling under, but now more than ever, there's this, you know, how it's in the you, news. The focus is in, on it. Exactly, exactly. So it's just interesting the take on training uh, the focus on a, a female officer. Mm-hmm. Knowing everything, like you had mentioned earlier, that goes on inside of these organizations, you know, that right. blue, the thin blue line and all of that, that she, even within her role and what she has, she has legacy, her father, decorated hero, he saved a bunch of lives. She still doesn't feel comfortable showing weakness yeah. because of this overarching scenario that permeates you know police departments absolutely and uh it's it sucks that sucks yeah <laughs> that's the case that's all i got <laughs> yeah. i ain't got the, that's it yeah. that's, that's about as much sympathy as i can offer at this point yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um but yeah so she looks up and she sees the word sow written in blood oh, which yeah. is a female pig pigs is cops there you go nice there little go. a to c <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and she goes to recheck the locks and she finds someone just chilling outside. Yeah. Uh, this person introduces herself as Marigold and she tells Lauren that she was in one of the cells when the police arrested a quote unquote wannabe Manson family mm-hmm. led by John Michael Paymon, which is where her father was killed, was getting this cult right. member. Right. So she's like, oh, I have this inside scoop. I was there when it happened. And the story that you know is wrong. The details were never made public. And there was this sort of idea that the cult had been killed at the scene. Right. Um, But what actually happened, according to Marigold, is they hanged themselves at the station one year ago to the day. And that even though the bodies were gone, pure evil covered the walls. <laughs> and I was like, this is some Halloween Donald Pleasance ass shit where he's like, pure evil. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that it's just this chick who was, I think she was a sex worker. Probably. And she it seemed, probably seemed that way. <laughs> seemed that way. And she just was like, I love how she's like the twi- the Donald Pleasance character, yeah. if you were. <laughs> She's the twist. She's like, you know, she came. But that was like some information that shifted the entire, that basically shifts the entire 
film. I mean, the film at this point kind of goes full tilt. Absolutely, because now now you're like, okay, I understand sort of the context of the paranormal things right. that are happening here. Right. It gives you a little bit of a foundation to start building ideas off of. Right, right, And right. Uh, it's it's... The pacing of how they drop this information, I think, is done so well throughout the whole thing. So well. And again, I keep talking about the time because it's a short film, right? Yeah. So, like, the way they jam in scares, tropes, everything, and then these little bits of information is just perfectly timed. She doesn't get a minute to – that nap was the last time (laughs) – she had a yeah. chance to rest in this film. I mean, even though she gets this information dump, Marigold right. still gets to deliver a scare as well because as she walks away, she starts humming the song that Lauren heard earlier oh. in the hallway. And you're like, oh my, like, how, like, is she involved? What's the deal? Uh, just so stoking those flames of what's going on. <laughs> and she it's closes great. the door. She closes that door and mm-hmm. locks that bitch back up. <laughs> oh. Yeah. It's, it's great. And Lauren heads inside and she finds three staticky TVs, which sharpen into interrogation footage of the cult leader and two followers. Right. And she gets like entranced by it. And we like fall into these like swirling flashbacks, kind of. It's like it's sort of like they're on the TV screen, but also like we're there, and it's really creepy. I mean, the cult members do cult member things. One of them slams her face on the table and breaks her nose, and it's, yeah. it's shocking. And the flashbacks also reveal some more information. They're not just scares. They're pulling double duty here, which is important because they reveal that the cult worships the king of hell, also named Paimon, Mm -hmm. like the cult leader. And so that's how they sort of tie it, where they're like, it was meant to be, that's his name, it's the king of hell. Uh, It was also doing it before Hereditary, so Ari Aster (laughs) biting his style, clearly. (laughs) Completely biting his style. (laughs) That Paymon gets around, man, I tell yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, oh, sure, I'll be in your movie. <laughs> <laughs> and they also make reference to a family being back at the ranch, connecting it to the calls from before, where she's like, oh, there were people here uh, who invaded our house. And, and you start, even before Lauren starts to connect those dots, yeah. we as an audience start to be like, oh, uh, the stuff, the stuff from earlier, those calls might not be all that they seemed, even though they were already scary. Yeah, it's there's everything is doing work to set up later payoffs, which is something that I really admire in terms of sort of economy of dialogue and action and everything. I also thought cult subplots are so you know, it, it's done, it's been done. Everybody, you know, fr- from we- well into the dawn of cinema you know, cults, the representation of cults in film, sometimes are hokey. I feel like this was very true to that, like, Manson-esque sort of... We don't know fully, like, what Manson was telling, like, what it was inside. We only have sort of, like, reports and, 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 you know, unreliable narrators all over the place. So this was, like, the first time I've seen, like, a really great representation that was not... Manson of just how brain fucked these people become and how they, how trying to get information out of them is just virtually impossible. Right. And that sort of 
air about them is part of why it was so difficult to get those reports of what the Manson family was like because they're all so drugged out and everything that even yeah. first person accounts are a little shaky in terms of what's <laughs> what's true and what's not. So 100%. And I think about like Once Upon a Time not a horror film but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Again, I'd never seen like a reflect a representation of them as just just these burnouts ma- marauding yeah. right all yeah. over I mean California. that scene was a pretty uh, pretty good horror movie if you ask me. That yeah, one, uh, that one yes. scene, so. yeah, that one scene though. <laughs> Oh, jeez. It's great. It's really great. But uh, this movie does a great job of capturing that vibe. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. And before the three of them commit mass suicide, Paymon threatens to come back and destroy everybody. And it's very creepy, especially when the chairs start spinning around and sometimes they have the girls' bodies in them and the video keeps saying, I like you. And I- I'm just like totally on edge at this point. So freaked out. It's great. <sighs> This is that atmosphere that they're working so hard to develop, but it's so useful in terms of, I mean, on its head, this is just some chairs spinning around and some dialogue, but because the atmosphere is so thick, it's like, I mean, it's absolutely horrifying in this moment because they've worked so hard to develop that. Here's one thing that I think is interesting in that most films, right, horror films, if there's a creepy noise outside, you have options to not Mm. check on it. As a police officer, she has no choice. Right. She has to investigate every single thing that goes down. She literally has to, that room, that one off room off to the side where stuff was being weird or the lights were, she had to go, she has to go check that out. She yeah. doesn't know what's going on. So that already is a great hook that can give us a, a layer of believability because we know that she has no choice but to see every single element of whatever is happening through. Right. It takes away that option of people questioning it and being like, well, why isn't she leaving? Yes. I wouldn't stay around. And it's like, well, she has to. Like, she literally is locked in there. Like, it's her first day. There's so yeah. So much that has led to this point where it's never in doubt why she's going to check these things out, which is, I think, super important. And she gets another call from Monica at this point. And one thing that I really love about horror is – and I think it's relatively unique. I talked about this a little bit on the recent Get Out episode as well because it does some cool work there. The camera in horror, I think, is uniquely situated to do character work Mm -hmm. in terms of – using reveals while paired with the dialogue or music or something to sort of inform the character that we're looking at or their perspective or whatever. And the camera here does some really great character work because despite the calm exterior that Lauren is presenting to Monica on the phone because she's like, okay, I'm in a 911 mode. The camera itself is wobbling around and getting a little unhinged and it's sort of able to communicate her emotional state underneath the exterior in a way that is just not feasible in most other genres. Yeah. And I think the angle, that particular angle where she's at the sort of the command desk, that lends itself to also being really frightening because that door behind her has got to stay open. She's got these windows where it's just at eye level when she's sitting down. So anything could be hiding. And then there's that one hallway off to the side that's just completely darked out and inclusive of the one behind her. She's just it's it's it creates like this. She's in it, even the confined space she's in gets smaller. Backed into a corner, yeah. Backed into a corner when she gets to because that's the only central place. 
that phone and being able to look at that exit, those are her only, that's the only way, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. And, you know what I mean? So like everything else around her is falling apart, but this is sort of like that safe space. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because it sort of is like a catch 22 because when you're, when you're in that corner, you're like, well, I have the walls here. Ostensibly yes. nothing can get me. I, right. I have this little bit of safety here, right. but because it, 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 because it is so removed from the rest of it, yeah. it, it's really, she can't see anything coming. So by the time it gets there where that safety would be an issue, it's already right in your face. Exactly. Really exactly. cool stuff. Really cool yeah. stuff. And she hears whistling and she has to go investigate again. Yeah. And you get some more classic paranormal jazz, like chairs rearranging themselves. And this is, again, because this is one of the more grounded stunts here, she starts to think it's like a hazing ritual. Right. And this is interesting because we start to question her mental state in terms of like, is she just ignoring the delusions or hallucinations or whatever that she just saw because she also ignored the face of the other person popping up and you're like yeah. does she have like a history of visual hallucinations or something like right. or is she is it trauma is she yeah you know l- l- loss of a parent that triggers trauma. yeah just packing it in she's just yeah. like shove it down i need like i have to just do yeah. it and really start to be like oh something might be wrong with lauren yeah here. it might yeah. not just be scares here yeah like something's up with her and she like i said she starts to think it's a hazing ritual and perfect moment for ryan price fellow police officer to arrive at the station of course just as she's thinking this and she says of course it was you who planned all this like oh haha where was it just you or is the whole team in on it and he's confused and he insists that he came by to check up on her and he's like oh i knew your father and that's why i came here to look in on you and we're like okay finally a sympathetic figure thank god Thank God. I'm so calmed by this. And then I start even thinking there might be obviously like a rope there. there, There's a slight flirtation. Very slight. Very slight. And, you know, certainly they have some chemistry at the very least. And yeah, yeah, you're just like, is this going to be like a a subplot that they're going to force in? Certainly you are not anticipating the way that it shakes out to be the way that it shakes out because Christ. He he confirms that the cult, like he confirms the information from before about the cult being captured alive. And he says, your father would be proud of you, which is obviously huge for her. This is big news. But as he leaves, he turns around and Lauren sees a bullet wound gaping in the back of his head. His brain is completely missing completely gone and he just disappears around the corner what a great moment i totally took me by surprise because they play up that sort of chemistry and you're like oh is this gonna be like a romance that they try and shove in here totally took me by surprise (laughs) was not expecting him to be a fucking freaky ass blown out head ghost i was (laughs) once i saw that i literally in my head i was like oh my god (laughs) i rewound it george because I had to, because I, I, I was like, because I, I don't know if I was like eating something or I drinking something because I, because I was literally like, oh my God, oh, <laughs> did I, 
Did I miss any 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 inkling any that this guy? Yeah. Any indication? And there's a zero indication this guy's a full on ghost. Yeah, zero. And and she's never behind him either. No. So like, there's never any moments where you're like, oh, she would have seen the the head wound. No. He's constantly behind her and. and just it's done so well to keep you in the dark on it. I mean the the, the wheels completely fall off yeah. this beast. We're off the point. rails, folks. We're off the rails, folks. <laughs> I was just like I still think about that. That's why I was so glad when I when I recommended this that you chose that because I thought back to that scene and you not having seen it yet, and I was like, uh the one. I was like, yeah. Lash is great. It really is. And this moment is so effective. And as she runs out there to check on him, you get some more fun cinematography where the camera's doing some. Yeah, check on him. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> See if he's there, even. He just right. vanishes. Right, and, right, right. And uh, the, yeah, the camera swings around and she's hearing voices and vis- and she starts seeing visions. And this is one that I, uh, I really liked where, again, it's sort of wearing that influence on its sleeve where right. the body getting dragged down the hall looked a lot like the scene in Nightmare on Elm Street where the corpse yes. and the body bag is getting dragged down yes. the school hallway. Yes. Very cool. But the piece de resistance, the scariest moment for me, I'm going to reveal it right now, is... Oh, wow. She, he, she finds this group of cultists singing in the locker room in a circle, and when they turn, the reflection stays the same, but oh. their faces move and are bagged and bloody and... That just about made me shit my pants. <laughs> that was so fucking scary. I was still reeling from Officer Price. Yeah. So at this point, yeah. I'm just like, I'm just like, get the fuck out. I know you can't leave, <laughs> but get the fuck out anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I mean, again, sort of calling back to that hereditary, Ari, you yes. have a lot to answer for where <laughs> the the kid's reflection when he's at school sort of does this same sort of thing. Yeah. And it's just so effective here. It really, it really scared me. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was really, it, it just, and that's not even God. We're not even probably an hour at this point. No, I don't. I don't think we are. I think we're probably coming up on it, but I don't yeah. think we've hit the hour mark. Yeah, yet. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the that's again one hour of just solid, like cra- absolute batshit craziness. Yeah, and this is finally the moment where Lauren calls Cohen, and she's like, "I can't, I can't do this," and she reconsiders not only because he threatens to fire her. But also he threatens her devotion by being yeah. like, oh, apples p- fall pretty far from the tree, I guess. And, yeah. and like the sort of like impugning her honor right. and her father's reputation yeah. uh, is is seemingly much more effective in getting her to stay than just right. being like, oh, I'm going to fire you. Right, 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 right. And I feel like, you know, uh, that is sort of reminding us. It had been, been a while since we kind of had that human reminder that yeah. this is that she's in, you know, we're getting a lot of, you know, the, the, the paranormal, uh, the finding of the picture, <laughs> the blown out head cop that I knew your dad, uh, that this, this thing happened that ties back to the case that her father, you know, died on. It's been a while since we've had somebody that was just like, uh, this is your job and you yeah. need to be doing this. So <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm s- sorry if it's haunted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is hazmat there yet? No. Yeah, okay. Seriously. Call me when that happens. <laughs> Bye. Like, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, he's not having it. And 
she she hangs up and again you get another phone call no time to rest and monica says that she escaped but that they're chasing her yeah and that and then the line goes dead and lauren calls the dispatcher back but he tells lauren that monica was the final victim of paymon's cult all those years oh not all those one year ago yeah and yeah. like it's it just all snaps into focus where you're like is this a like a fucked up prank? Is it a ghost? Like again, even when you get answers, it sort of opens up more possibilities. It just keeps you so invested in, in yeah. despite the fact that it is providing these answers, which it needs right. to do. Right, right, and you know there is still like some ambiguity about just like where that this is going to lead to. Does this? all culminate back in the station? Is yeah. this an opportunity for her to leave the station? Right. Like, you don't know, like, where this is going to lead to. This reveal. Yeah, especially since the dispatcher kind of alludes to the fact that maybe the police know that it's haunted. He's like, right. oh, it's not just the rusty pipes that made us leave. Like, <laughs> like okay, guy. Like, uh, <laughs> this is starting to be a problem. Long yeah. story short. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like no no warning or anything yeah. for poor Lauren here. No. But <laughs> she she hangs up because she finds a photo of her dad shot on the floor. Like she notices that out of the corner of her eye and she hangs up on the dispatcher and as she goes to check it out, she finds several other evidence photos, wow. um, including uh, Officer Price with his head blown out. Yeah. So again, sort of confirms that he's dead and there's sort of like, well, where is this coming from? They mm -hmm. said all the evidence was removed and everything. Yeah. The pictures increase and get organized. And when they finally are like laying out in a grid, for some reason, that was so much scarier to me than yeah. when they were just in a pile there. Yeah. It's spectacular. And the lights flicker and her head starts to hurt and she passes out again. And... Uh, not ideal. Not an ideal no, situation. No, nope. nope. <laughs> wrong move, wrong time. And so there's, again, this like, was she asleep before? Is this really her passing out? Could this be her waking up, really? Like, the, all of the dream rules are sort of in effect where you're like, I don't right. really know how much I can trust what I'm being shown here because right. of that unreliable narrator aspect that's in effect here. Which is interesting because now we're even more fucked up than she is for yeah. us, for us seeing <laughs> it. Right. So yeah. we were experiencing it and we were thought we were, you know, able to sort of follow along. And now we're in this world. We're getting pulled into this world with her. Exactly. And um, she wakes up, the photos are gone and her phone is ringing and it's her mom and she's she's like oh, i like i understand like why you wanted to do this and like the very like casual conversation considering what's been happening and in this moment she sees someone moving yeah. and she goes to confront them but they bop her on the head and they take her <laughs> to an interrogation room yeah. and they reveal that they're a living member of the paymon cult yeah and there's a really important line here that she says that I really want to call out where she says, if crazy is being devoted to something you love, then I'm as crazy as a slimy snail in a tin can, which obviously, aside from the sort of folksy idiom that's it's buried in, I think really sort of captures the sort of theme of this movie in terms of that like devotion and how far 
is too much and how far are you willing to go before that devotion it really sort of lines up and for and draws a, a parallel line between Lauren and her father and yeah. these cultists with John Paymon. It, it also could be sort of also seen, and you already said this, but I feel like it's also seen as she's going crazy in this place that's slimy to her, right? Right. She's the cult member, and you, you, you kill, you busted up my family. Right. You were like, but this was my family. You busted up. You made us, you know, go to that next level. You made us push us to that very edge. You're just as crazy as I am. So I definitely love when she says that. Yeah, it's really great. And she says that she again confirms that this is the one year anniversary. And she says that she's here to celebrate it and then pulls the trigger on herself, which I thought is a really shocking moment. Yeah, It It feels like they're setting up to sort of be this like. Oh God, here we go. Sort of like torture porn. Like, what are we going to see here? And again, they, they pull the carpet out from under you. They subvert that expectation in a way that is, is very positive to me that we don't just see this young woman getting tortured there. Right. Right. And the phone is going just berserk. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like rattling off the desk and Lauren gets this. She gets, she answers the call and it's from Monica in quotes who starts to laugh when Lauren says that she's dead and Monica then appears under the desk, oh. not looking her best. <laughs> oh. You're just reminding me of so many times I forgot of these things. <laughs> Ah! it's awful it's really awful she's like crawling around on all fours she's grody uh all of the things that like the cult members had been talking about before where she was like oh i smashed her teeth up into her forehead and like when you see her like it's her face is so beaten to a pulp and it's like rotted and you know speaking of american werewolf in london rotted people showing up randomly this is it i mean (laughs) jesus christ she like sort of like stalks Lauren around for a little bit. And I mean, good Lord, it's so scary. It's, she's not even really being like too aggressive. Like it doesn't seem yeah. like she's trying to kill her, but she's just so horrendously grotesque that yeah. you're, you're, you get this visceral reaction, this repulsion that you're like, Oh, I just get this away. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think of like, I think at this point I remember thinking like, God, how much more? Yeah. How much more? Yeah. It's, it can't be that much because they keep escalating and yeah. you're like, at some point I can't get more scared. Yeah. <laughs> like, so you're like, yeah. all right, I'm coming. We must be coming up on it. And yeah. one thing I really like is that they do keep utilizing different sorts of scares, even though yes. a lot of them yes. are sort of these like yes. surprise things aren't the way that you left them. They don't all feel like the same jump scare and it's exactly. getting repeated over and over. Exactly. Um, which is, exactly. A, again, crucial to something like this because it's so easy to just be like, all right, here's something popping into frame and some creepy music. This really, yeah. it, it changes things up and it, it isn't just focusing on the element of surprise, especially with scenes like this where you really get to linger on the makeup and right. see how she looks and how awful it is, yes. um, which is great. I think which great. Is, there's a film that like tried to do this and we all went to see it because it came out and we wanted it to be great. And it's house on haunted Hill yeah. house on haunted Hill ended up being goofy. 
right? It had the chance to do the same thing this film did, which is, you know, provide like really great different types of scares, right? Like different, you know, quality of scares. And it just ends up being goofy. And this is one thing about this film. It is not goofy. See, that's the thing. It feels like a, a, a modern haunted house movie in a yeah. really interesting way it feels yeah. like you you walk and each room kind of provides a different scare and each one is unique and yeah you kind of just follow her going through the tour yeah and that area was safe right remember that area right. was the safe space and now that area is no longer the safe space anymore that area is just completely a hot fucking mess exactly and because of that lack of safety that last vestige that she felt she had yeah. she tries to leave in this moment when Monica vanishes and she tries to leave door won't open she starts shooting at it the glass doesn't break or anything yeah. when it's shot yeah and her, she gets another phone call on her cell phone and it's her dead dad that was it <laughs> that was just too far too far Anthony <laughs> too far it's so effective too because yeah. he like he starts out like praising her and he's like oh you're just like me and i'm glad you did it for me and again it sort of feels like this cultist getting lured in by someone with this charisma yeah and it takes that next step when he demands justice for his death right and you're like oh this is exactly like that she's being led down this path of corruption yeah and he yeah he demands the justice and the line goes dead and there's motion behind her and she thinks it's the guy from the holding cells. And she goes to rearrest him. But as she's doing that, he instantly changes position and his head is all jacked up and it's bloated and the lights go out and he vanishes. And it's again just unrelenting, just scare yeah. after scare after scare. Yeah. yeah. And she goes to check that holding cell and she finds him in there and hanged with blood coating the interior window and cult writing all over the wall. Just, it's it's so intense. It's just so intense. And things for her sort of get fuzzy because her radio starts to leak blood as she calls for help. And you're like, again, is this that, is she passed out? Is this all in her head? What's happening? More of these like visions of the cult members who are, who look like they're from silent Hill. They, they show up and uh, the death of the three that had killed themselves before, like they come out of the vision and they're demonic. And she sees officer price again, who mimes killing himself and the blood shoots out. And you're, it's just, it's overwhelming in a way that's clearly intended. It's supposed to sort of like, shut you down, make you retreat inward the way that she is clearly doing as well. Right, right. Curious if this is a scene that you enjoy in terms of that tension really kind of coming to a head or if it gets to be too much sometimes. No, I I, I don't think anything could be too much in horror. I think, you (laughs) know, the way this film does scares, horror, gore, all of it is perfect because, again, the time. The yeah. time is so short that you just, it, the hits keep coming. You're stimulated. You don't have time to even really recover. Hence why I re- rewound the officer price scene. Cause I'm still trying. I needed a minute to go back and didn't see what exactly did I see what I just saw. Was that yeah. what just happened? Cause it's moving and, so quick. Yeah. Cause it's moving so quick. And I recall the same thing with hereditary where we go from the party, the house party with her brother. And then we get in the car anaphylactic shock head missing yeah. and then f- home and you know, all those screaming. classic hits all those classic hits <laughs> 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 and 
and I just feel like <laughs> I just <laughs> I just feel like you know you I rewatch things a lot because it's like just the pacing. It's a symphony, and yeah. I, this is what this film is. It's quite the symphony because and it's you're, crescendoing. Yeah, it's crescendoing because it's just you don't. From the very beginning, you have your mindset that it's going to be one thing, and yeah. it doesn't give you a second to breathe. Absolutely, I, I think you're totally right in terms of it feeling very deliberate that it, yeah. it that it does come to a head like this, and that it is crescendoing this way. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of movies where it does sometimes feel like it's overstimulating, it, it feels that way just as a byproduct of them just throwing the kitchen sink. Right. And right. with this, it it feels very much like things had led to this moment instead right. of just being like, all right, what do we have left? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's great. She, she, like I said, she retreats inward. She starts repeating the oath again. And she gets another call from her father who warns her that the cult members are assaulting the station. And she goes on this little mini rampage killing all of these cult members who are co- who are coming in and they are taunting her and stuff and uh, you know you're as far as we're concerned we're like oh this is for real but yeah <laughs> as she yeah. shoots the last one officer cohen appears and shoots her from behind and you get this great moment of clarity here where she realizes and we realize at the same exact time that she has just murdered the hazmat team that showed up. Good gracious. And you get one last shot of the clock as it hits the end of the shift and you're, um, wow. Took me by such surprise. It's so effective. What a great reveal. What do you think about it? I, I, I was bummed. I'll be honest with you because I really, really, really wanted her to be closing that loop because mm-hmm. I'm a daddy's girl and I just wanted it to be like representing daddy, like getting right. rid of all the baddies. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I kind of t- have to tell you, I knew something was amiss when uh, Officer Price returns yeah. and mimics shooting himself in the head. Yeah. That led me to think that he was, he, he clearly was repenting for something. Nobody, mm-hmm. I don't think it was a cult member that did it. Something clearly happened in whatever. We'll never know. But there was something just amiss about that I was I was completely comfortable with the fact that maybe one of the cult members caught him and you know did whatever, but something happened there yeah. that led him to kill himself. Yeah, which means he was taunting. He was in on the taunting as well. It's a very subtle sort of yes. Hey, even the things that were already crazy might not have been the way that they seemed. Right, exactly. And I was just bummed. Like when I saw it, I was like, oh, girl. You did so well. You were so heroic all night. Yep. And goddamn. And it turns out she was just going on a rampage. <laughs> just going on a rampage. Your garden variety rampage. <laughs> and, well, and so Cohen calls for medical assistance. But you get one last creepy scare as Lauren starts singing the cult song. And the cult members sort of, like, the spirits sort of appear and start walking towards her. And uh, even this reveal that it was all fake, you're like, well, was it fake? Like, here they are again. Like, are they leading her towards this sort of damnation? Yeah. This building is a piece of shit. Yeah. (laughs) This building is just a piece of shit. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I I think that um, I definitely understand that being bummed about like this character that you've sort of gotten behind having that rug pulled out. But yeah. I loved this ending. I thought that it was really fantastic, oh. and uh, and the way that. They do keep that ambiguity going at the end where you're like, yeah. oh, man, the, they still showed up again. I thought that was a, a great sort of cherry on top in terms of you could still kind of go whatever way you wanted with your interpretation. Right. And I always think about like uh, Talented Mr. Ripley, which I guess you can call a, psycholo- no, a psychological thriller. But I always think about how every twist and turn for Tom Ripley Ultimately, he just finds a way to bail himself out, right. even to the very end when he's up literally in a corner up against the wall, finds a way to, to bail himself out. And that is probably what I was anticipating in right. this scene, like a savior moment. And it just was not dark. the case. It's not the case. <laughs> Didn't work out for Lauren. No, certainly did not. And I have one more quote here from Anthony where oh, I, great. I, yeah, I talked to him about sort of what he was looking to explore with this movie and what he sort of thought about the themes. And you basically hit the nail on the head where he said to me, last shift is all about devotion and it's explored through the blind devotion. We see in John Michael's followers and the familial devotion we see with Jessica. Most scary stories have that element of why does our protagonist stick around? And I wanted to explore devotion being that reason, her sense of duty to her father's memory and to her job, which is tied directly to getting approval from her dead father, even if her mother is telling her that the choice she's making isn't good for her state of mind. So no matter how scared she becomes, that sense of devotion to her father, of doing the right thing, and that fear of looking weak, these elements bring her back to toughen up and to fight it out no matter what's happening. Yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to explore in a horror movie because he's absolutely right. So often we're like, why are they still here? What is holding them here? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. And- if it's not a, if it's not a paranormal force, it's, it's gotta be something else. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so with that, Winter, we've now reached the point of the podcast where we each sum up why this is the best horror movie ever made. And so I'll uh, I'll let you start things off. I think this is the best horror movie ever made because in the time that it was cre- it was created, 2014, we were we didn't know what we were about to embark upon. No one knew what was the next end of that decade was going to be like. And that's, you know, politically, pop culturally, uh, and especially in the genre of horror, we had no idea what we were going to push towards. And this film sort of looks like an inflection point. It looks like the past in terms of like, the 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 type of horror, the, uh, the gore, you know, that just really overt horror that really just gruesome every kill is is worse than the next <laughs> hi kitty this is I buck. Can, hi buck i can tell you saw he was coming He's yeah coming. i was trying to hold him off and it just wasn't wasn't happening come on pal uh, all right <laughs> that's so funny uh you couldn't tell what was gonna come in this film and and the the fact that it's an inflection point in the sense that it was 
in the past, we had really crazy gore and horror. We had really original storytelling because things hadn't been done before. And then we're going into the future where we're doing things uh, on a different scale, utilizing sort of like the tr- the elements of tropes that we love. A little bit of found footage, a little bit of this, that, and the other, a little bit of psychological horror. And I think that it was able to combine tropes without leaning too heavily on one or the other. And I also think that it was able to honor the people that came before us, the Carpenters, the Cravens, all of those horror masters, those masters of horrors, even the Jalos. And it was able to pull it all together in a tight little package that kept you wanting more and kept you guessing. I feel like horror, it is very, very hard to do that. Usual, Usually movies that are uh, 97 minutes, 87 minutes are full of just like easy gotchas. Mm-hmm. you know, jump scares, really poor CGI, not well thought out characters, not a lot of character development. Yeah, they feel like cash grabs. They feel like cash grabs. And this was all contained in one space. I mean, he really nailed it and got it. I, yeah. I've never seen a movie like this before, yet I've seen a movie like this before. This is just the best version of that movie. Yeah, I, I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is both innovative and pays homage to the things that came before. Like you said, it does so much with so little. The fact that it was made for $150,000 is mind boggling. Mind boggling. It looks so good for a movie with much bigger budget. Never mind that budget. And the fact that Juliana Harkavy is able to sort of not only carry the movie, and the burden of being the character perspective the whole time, but she's able to realistically escalate her reactions, which is also important because if she is terrified from the, from the word go, then there's nowhere to build to. And she does such a great job of, of letting it trickle out in a a great pace. And all these things, Plus the fact that it does have that ambiguity that I love and it manages to sort of keep you guessing the whole time while delivering these scares. To me, that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Winter, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was absolutely a blast. And please tell the people where they can find you because you got to get more great (laughs) pop culture critiques from Winter. I'm at Winter, W-Y-N-T-E-R, Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L on Twitter. That's where you'll find me. I hang out there all day like the Matthew McConaughey character (laughs) in Days and Confused. That's just my post. I love just commenting. And I love engaging with people. You get older, but the tweets stay the same. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. This was so fun, George. This is great. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, as far as my plugs, uh, same thing. Little Horror PHL on Twitter. You can find most of the stuff there. If you're looking for merch, you can go to littlehorrorphl.com and there is links and stuff to pretty much everything on there. If you enjoy the show, hey, why not give us a rating and a review on iTunes because it helps out the show a lot. Uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, oh, and listen uh, to yeah. my podcast. Right, oh. Wait and exhale. Oh, yeah. Listen to my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot to plug my own podcast. Definitely do that. Wait and exhale. <laughs> We're on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> Hell yeah. Definitely check it out. It's a lot of fun. Like I said, they just entered their third season, which I'm Woo! really looking forward to. So check that out. <laughs> 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 Thanks again, Winter. Bye. <laughs>